Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Interabang Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Simon. Thank you for being with me today, and thanks for listening. Before we jump into this week's episode, let's go and talk about some of the news you may have missed this week. Our top story, representatives from 20 student associations have sent various thank yous to both the College Employer Council and the Ontario Employees Union OPSU for reaching an agreement that averted a strike, finding a resolution that puts students first. Fanshawe Student Union President Ricardo Souza echoed those sentiments, saying that he couldn't be happier for students who will be able to finish their academic year without further distraction. And Fanshawe College recently joined 44 other Ontario colleges in fighting for period equity. In a letter to Premier Doug Ford, the Toronto Youth Cabinet was asking for menstrual products to be offered for free in public bathrooms. When Fanshawe was asked to sign, there was no hesitation. Going back to Ricardo, FSU president, he says that data was presented explaining that one-third of Canadian women under the age of 25 are struggling to afford menstrual products. But offering these free products isn't new to the FSU, doing so since 2018. The FSU also teamed up with sexual violence prevention advisor Leah Marshall to bring sexual health vending machines to the college, allowing more accessibility for its students. The FSU teamed up with Marshall on a menstrual mail-out campaign as well. Packages that will give students who sign up online disposable products as well as a reusable menstrual cup after partnering with Diva Cup and a reusable pad. Both Souza and Marshall agree that period equity is something our community should be fighting for as a whole. And lastly, Ontario is gearing up to help students prepare for a career in esports with a $1 million scholarship. Available for post-secondary students who are involved with esports and related programs like game design, development, marketing, and innovation industry. In the official release, Jill Dunlop, Minister of Colleges and Universities, announced the importance of moving forward with the investment. Fanshawe's Ultimate Sports League, or Fuel Gamers, are more than excited. As Valorant team captain Adam Bryce said, the support from the government comes at a great time, where the industry is growing rapidly. The launch of this scholarship program is one of a kind for Canada. Students will be awarded starting the fall 2022 academic school year. For more information about any of these stories, check out the full articles in our latest issue of the Interrobang Arts and Music on either our website or in print. Speaking of arts and music, this week on the Interrobang Podcast, we are joined once again by Interrobang illustrator Ian Indiano. But new and very special to this week, we are also joined by internationally acclaimed visual artist Gerard Peter Pa. His art has been exhibited in many of the world's most renowned museums and galleries and taught right here at Fanshawe College. Born in the Netherlands and growing up in London, Ontario, Gerard was diagnosed with polio at a very young age. But through his art, I believe he is among those first artists who express their identities in challenging current attitudes and breaking stereotypes. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Gerard and Ian on this episode of the Interrobang Podcast. Well, anyway. Gerard, again, thank you so much for joining us here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I'm so honored in order to, to be speaking to you. I know last week we had Ian on the podcast as well, and he was raving about you afterwards, and we just had to get you on. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm touched. So I'd love to just jump right in. We've got a couple questions here for you, but I'd Go love to, to just start, first of all, I mean, taking the elephant in the room here, you're an internationally acclaimed visual artist, photographer painter, sculpture, performance, video artist, everything in the arts world. I think it's it's very safe to call, just call you an artist at its very core in everything that you do. Uh, I guess going back to your early childhood and what inspired you to kind of take this direction in your life? Well, initially, I mean, it's just that I was, I was enamored by art. And so um, I 
I just liked it. I don't know if I was particularly good at it, but I liked it. And I wasn't enjoying high school. In fact, I didn't enjoy high school. So I um, had a friend who went to Beale here in London, an art school. And uh, I used to love just going over to his place and he'd show me his stuff. So one of my teachers said, you know, you do good in, in an art school. And I went. And uh, that's uh, after that, there's been no looking back. I just kept making art, got, you know, got a studio and kept making art. That's great. Um, I think a great part of your work is more or less uh, self-biographical. You're kind of talking about uh, your own life and your own experience, right? Yeah. yeah, there's a, I mean, in the early years, it was definitely much more confessional, meaning you know, me talking about coming to terms with um, having a handicap. But I, I think in the, or at least I hope, that in the last um, years, I haven't been angry. And so um, I've been trying to make art using um, those images, but with a, with a, a more ambitious or happy outlook. So if you look at the wheelchair, you might go, oh, well, wheelchair, but it's a very beautiful wheelchair. And um, there's a point to that. And the point is that uh, having a handicap or using handicapped aids doesn't mean that they have to be ugly or that you're ugly in them and so or with them. Um, in fact, you know, I would argue that up and down. Um, case in point would be, for example, you know, most villains that you see on the movies, when you think about it, they're, they got a handicap. They're yeah. in a wheelchair, they lamp, they got a stutter. You know, uh, there's always something about them that makes them less than desirable. Yeah, Why? even from going back to Shakespeare, you would have like Richard III, who's, who was also disabled, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like Richard III, you know, he's got a hump and he's crunched over. I mean, why? Yeah. Why are our villains, why do they always have to have some kind of physical disability? I don't understand. Anyway, so yeah, my work does do and has done for many years, um, close to, well, well over 30 and probably near 40 years has dealt with um, my handicap. Now that came about honestly too, I might add. I didn't uh, wake up one day and go, oh, I think I'll make art about physical disability. So I, what happened was that I was actually quite intrigued in body art. Started looking at it, I moved back to, I moved back to Europe and I say back because I'm originally born in Europe. When I got there, I, I looked and I thought, well, if my body's the object, why can't I make it abstract to make it even less objective? So I started to contort or break things apart and reassemble them in an abstract fashion. That's absolutely amazing. And I'd love to go back to and talk about really where you're from. You said you're born in Europe, and I believe, is it the, the Netherlands, if I'm getting that correct? Yeah. Yes, I was born in Holland. Um, I reference that in my work, too, because I use... Well, and over the years, I've used predominantly red, yellow, blue, black and white, and gray. Um, and of course, the red, blue, and yellow come from a group of artists that were predom well, 
predominantly Dutch, called De Style or the neoplasticists. And I mean, there were similar movements in other countries like Bauhaus in Germany, for example. So I referenced them a lot, and um, like Mondrian or Van Duisburg and those guys. I'm, I'm sorry, I want to give you the name of a woman in that group, but they were very patriarchal. I don't know why, but nonetheless. Um, so yeah, that, that influence is definitely there. And I mean, since then, you've traveled the world and had such a successful career, and now you're living in London, but I know many years ago, and as Ian was telling me, you were involved in the punk movement in London. And for our yeah. younger audience who's who's listening now, who maybe wouldn't have been around during that time, I'd love to get the story through your eyes and through what you saw and, and talk about that experience of yours. Okay. Well, you know, a lot of these things are time-based, meaning um, in 19, and culture-based, relative to my age. So. I consumed culture up until a certain point. So, you know, I had my Beatles cards, I had my whatever, but they were products that I consumed. They weren't something that I could actually put my finger on and say that I have some level of ownership in it. I don't. So then as the 70s approached, mid 70s approached, I wanted to be able to express my, my own cultural views, my own expressions that weren't just bought. So I started to look out and I was lucky because I had been spending time in New York. And so when I went out in New York and Toronto too, I might add, um, I wanted to go to the places where uh, unique and different types of expressions were there. And so in New York, of course, at the time it was CBGB's in the Bowery, and um, at that time, CBGB's was still um, a biker bar. There were what they called no um, tunnel and bridge crowd there at all. It was bikers and punkers. So I got to know them, and um, then I got back to Toronto, and there was a group called the Center for Experimental Art and Communication, and they had a big building on Duncan Street, down by the Royal Alexander. And um, I hooked up with them and I hit it off and we became good friends. But they had a, a club in the basement called the Crash and Burn. It didn't last long, but it was the first sort of punk club in, well, in Canada. It was the first punk club in Canada. So because of SEAC or Center for Experimental Art and Communication, and my interests and my experiences in New York, that sort of was the perfect fit. And we had a magazine and did all kinds of expressions that were very much about punk. And that's how that came about. Now my life in punk was short though, I have to say, because at that time for me, punk was still an ideology, not a fashion statement. So, you know, I started, I'd go back to New York and I'd be hanging out with the coolest of coolest and going to the mud club and what have you. But I started, I was sitting there one day and just going, well, <laughs> this is a style. These, these people all over here have their daddy's credit card in their pocket. Whereas when I was living in Europe, it was much more a social movement, meaning I was out of work, my dad was out of work, and my grandfather was out of work. So, you know, we 
saw a different world altogether. And uh, so I started getting kind of annoyed with punk as a fashion, as opposed to a statement, um, a, a sense of politics or a sense of well-being. It wasn't that anymore. It was now you go down to Mark Street and buy the coolest clothes and look and try to look cool so that when you went to the mug club, you were the cool person. I didn't really care about that stuff. <laughs> well, it's nice that you mentioned about uh, the people you were uh, hanging out in New York because um, I was also uh, telling Amy about uh, you were friends with uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat and um, Chuck Close and, and can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, it, gets, it doesn't matter where you are New York or otherwise, when you focus on a particular area, in my case, art and punk, it becomes a small world. So I had a couple of friends, a painter and uh, a fashion model, and uh, we would do things together. And so one day I went over to see the painter and there was a, a guy waiting to get in And that was uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. And um, it was really funny because he wanted to get into James's apartment, not so much because it was cool to hang out, but he would sleep on the sofa. I mean, he had no money, he had no nothing. He, not like the guy, the dead guy who just sold like whatever it was, a $190 million painting a few years back or two years back. You know, it was all part of that circle. You'd go to the CBGB's and then later the Mud Club and, you know, Deborah Harry and Basquea and um, all kinds of notable notes would be there. And the thing about New York is once you have achieved a certain level of notoriety, you want to meet other people with integrity. It's not necessarily about your status as a famous person. Like, nobody cares. Everybody's famous. You know, I think... Warhol made that kind of statement about the 15 minutes. Well, when everyone has their 15 minutes, then who cares, right? Unless you're jealous and they got 17 and you only got 14. You know, I mean, it's at that point, it's ridiculous. So, yes, I got to know a lot of people and I moved to Holland. And even while in Holland, um, you know, I, I got to meet a lot of um, interesting people there. I moved back to London with because I started having some problems. Um, they, uh, without getting into too much detail, uh, addiction was involved, and I, want, I had to get away from it. And so I wasn't sure what to do. My friends in Holland had moved to London, England, so he won't be as far away. But I, my parents lived here, and I knew that they loved me and that I could come back here, and so I did. And then I met my wife, and, well, the rest is history. <laughs> Um, another guy that uh, you met, and I think it's a pretty interesting story, is, is um, uh, William Burroughs, uh, for those, yeah. uh, for, for the Beat Generation fans <laughs> that are <laughs> <Yeah>. listening to <laughs> us. Yeah, I got, I, I knew this guy, his name was Soyo Ben, or Ben Posset, and he had um, a production company, and he would travel through Europe and do the biggest poetry festivals, and all kinds of events, I think he managed, not managed, but I think he was a publicity guy for Jefferson Airplane, a lot of hippie stuff. Anyway, he lived in Amsterdam and I lived in Amsterdam and we got to know each other because he did, he organized all these huge poetry festivals. Um, he would have some of the greatest writers of our time 
and through him I got to know some of the greatest writers of our time so my initial meeting of Burroughs was you know I was a man in my 20s with a leather jacket and Burroughs was writing um, about the cities of the Red Knight um, with all these similar looking characters to me and I was asked if I would drive him around so I looked I, I knew who he was of course and I said what you want me to drive William Burroughs around are you crazy of course I want to drive William Burroughs around so that's how it started me offering a service and you know I mean when you're in the car and get to talking you can see how genuine people are you know I also I didn't because I was that New York cool I didn't uh, sit there at his feet like looking up at him like he was some kind of demigod I simply saw another artist and he accepted me for who I was and that was that so all of those pressures and tensions and they were just gone we we had to do things that had to be done and we did them and I'd love to go now too and and talk about really again your your art and where it's been all around the world and Ian was telling me and as I was seeing it's been exhibited in some of the world's most renowned and, and interesting galleries and museums, again, all over the world. And I'd love to know, again, from your perspective, a few that stand out to you the most or some places that you've been and that you've traveled to and experiences that still resonate with you to this day. Um, thank you. That's uh, uh, an interesting question. I, I'm not exactly certain how to answer it, but I will attempt to. I was very lucky when I was a very young guy, like 18. I had an acquaintance, let's call him, Claude Breeze, who was a painter from D.C., but he was the artist in residence up here at Western. And he told me, no one's ever going to be to pass here, door ever. And so what that signaled to me was, okay, then, well, then I have to be to pass to theirs. And so I learned to accept rejection, and I learned to knock on doors at the same time, because, you know, nine out of ten are just going to say, bugger off we have you know call don't call us we'll call you but it's the one that does call you so it started with uh, because of the alternative i would for example was in cologne west germany and um i met this guy he was a bit of an one well, i forget what it's called um ska where they wear like felt shoes and ska um ska music ska he was in that realm but anyway we hit it off and uh he said, oh, come and, come and do an exhibition with us. And I did. And, you know, when you look at the list of who was in that show, you just sort of went, wow. Particularly now that it's four years later. Similar to a show I did in Switzerland uh, where a catalog was printed. And um, there was a catalog from the other show, too, I might add. You look at who was in the show and how fortunate I was. But look, at I did a, they did a major spread on my work in the Italian architectural fashion uh, magazine called Domus. It's a very expensive, it's a big format, it's like $25 for a magazine or more. Anyway, how did that come about? And why is there this big color spread on my work? Well, it comes about because I wrote them and said, you know, I love your magazine, I love what you do in it. It's had influence on me. Here are some examples of my work. And they wrote back and said, yeah, we want to do something with it. But it wasn't connections, it wasn't whom I knew, it was simply I believed in the work and I took a risk. And um, so that traveled all over the world and then suddenly 
you know, I was no longer living in London anymore. So now I wasn't like, I, I don't like the terms, but I don't know how to explain it. But, you know, the prophet's never recognized in his hometown. I'm not a prophet, but I'm using that as a metaphor. I, I just took the risk and the risk paid off. So it's sort of like, you know, it's like something I would tell a student and that would be 30 no's and five yeses is better than one no. You know, so if you only try once and they say no and then you give up, where does that get you? But if you try 30 and five of them come back with a maybe and two of those turn into pluses, now you have two yeses and you're further ahead than you were before. I, I always believed in that. I always did it. I always made sure that the people I thought would be helpful to the work got information about it. And, um, yeah, so... Some of those museums, I mean, the first time the first time you uh, walk past, uh, I don't know, a Rodin to get to your work, you go, wow, you know. I'm not that important, by the way, but it just gives you a feeling. Um, so, you know, I mean, like all kinds of museums um, in Essen or in Cologne or the Germans had a, a big influence on my work and had a big influence on my career. I speak German, so it's a little bit easier. You you mentioned students too, which is something that I, I wanted to talk about and kind of what led you to Fanshawe. And I mean, I know Ian, again, last well, week, he was he was revving about everything that you've, you've taught him. And I'd love well, to know, yeah, your journey of coming here. That one's quite easy. I was living in New York and working there at the time though. And uh, at that time, the convener or the department head was a, a British guy named uh, Tony McCauley. He's since passed away um, just a few years ago. I mean, Ian might have even heard of him. Do you know who he is, Ian? Um, I think Gary probably mentioned him, but I didn't uh, yeah. meet him yet. I mean, he was there for 30 years, so I mean, he had a big influence. Anyway, um, he was familiar with my work and he just, on the outside, took a risk and wrote me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing some work at the college? And I said, well, I might, but I'm, I'm struggling right now to see how I can find the time. So he, he said that he would accommodate me and I taught a course that meant that I could, you know, teach it every nine days at the time. Things weren't so strict about it. And so instead of an hour every week, it was like an hour and a half every other week. So that brought me in, and then I loved it. I loved, I taught before, but the thing about teaching is you're divorced from two realities. One, I love the students. I love the relationships and friendship I made with them, but you still have to deal with an administration. And um, I find administrators to be somewhat one-dimensional in their thinking. So in my previous years, of teaching in the university, I hated it. But I came to like Sancho because it was a little more down to earth. It wasn't so pretentious and people really wanted to make art and so did I and and I really wanted to help them make their art. And so it was a good marriage and I stayed 16 years. I, I taught at the college and um, I loved it. Maybe not so much in the last year with all this COVID years. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> It's, I mean, really. I, and I quit because of that. I taught half a semester under the COVID um, from home, 
but it's really hard to teach art on the internet, you know, unless you got a really big bushy head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm balding, so <laughs> me and that guy, whatever his name is, um, what's his name again? You know who I mean, though, right? Um, yeah, uh, Bob Ross. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, that guy. And uh, so, no, I loved it. And, and why did I love it? I loved it because of people like Ian. Yay. You know, if I could help them and you could see creative people and other really, really creative people who really wanted to learn how to express themselves and do something constructive with it, what's not to love about that? It's a rare opportunity. I'm really, really, really happy I um, I did it. I, th I think I w you, you mentioned that you're... Um you're less angry than you used to be. And I think I want to ask you about the, your, the, the current kind of work you're making right now after going through all, well, the, all the things that happened in your life. And uh, after- Yeah, I'm still working somewhat compassionately, obviously. We want to have some kind of existential understanding of what we're talking about for it to be sincere. And that's important to me and my work because I want that sincerity to be seen, this guy, has experienced this, so he knows what it's like for him. That might be different for you, but I stick with that. Um, right now I'm working on, I'm looking back at different areas and not so much about ambulatory concerns or walking concerns. Sometimes it's about things that alienated me. So in the years that I did punk and in the years that I was angry, you know, that work is very angry. I mean, you know, um, vomiting as art, you know, whatever. I mean, and then I got to a certain point where I had to question myself, art is catharsis or art can heal. And if art heals, what do you do when you're healed? You know, I don't, I feel that it becomes theater at that point if I go back, which is fine. I have no qualms with theater. I think it's genuine, but it's more like theater at that point, And that's not really what interested me. So I sort of changed my focus a little bit um, because to some degree all of that angry work if art is catharsis it worked i don't want to say the word i was healed but i learned to cope how's that with those things that were making me angry i and i will say i didn't do it on purpose but i also during that period of time had what you call it. it wasn't psychotherapy but i had a psychologist and uh, she helped me come to terms now with a lot of those issues be they father issues or issues around my leg you know there was a time in my life where uh, because of my age i'd be walking down the street and some i had a big leg brace on and somebody's mom would be walking their child holding their hand down the street and the child would be pulling on the arm going, what's wrong with that boy? What's wrong with that boy? What the mother would do would be go, shh, as if to say with her finger in front of her lips, you know, oh, no, 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 don't talk about it. And I always wondered, what the hell? Why are you going through? What I mean, what I have is something I've had all my life. And so that used to make me really pissed off. Things like that. So now, you know, we live in a different time. People are, are more apt to ask, uh, although I do still think there is some of that. I mean, you know, for many, many years, people with mental illnesses or 
physical disabilities were institutionalized, so we didn't see them. And we keep them in there because we had curbs on our corners where a wheelchair couldn't get. Now they're all, they dip, you know, they let us integrate into society. So yeah, I've changed and I'm looking for beauty. Now, please, I don't want to get too theoretical. My wife says my answers are too long-winded. Um, but I don't want to get the idea that beauty is this actual place where there is a beauty. In other words, because beauty can be a construct, can be a male construct, it can be a fashion industry construct. It can. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I do believe that beauty is like love. I, I believe it's worth talking about love. What is love? You know, you and I, or the three of us could sit here for hours talking about what love is, but I believe in it. I felt it. I'd like to be able to put it in my art, but it's just not something I'm very good at dealing with happy, but I'd like to. Is that an answer? <laughs> yeah, yes. that, that was beautiful. I mean, I don't have any more further questions. Ian, is there anything else you'd like to well, ask? I think that's a, a good moment to, to finish. <laughs> I, I yeah, couldn't yeah. agree more. <laughs> it's a, it's a beautiful <laughs> way to close our interview. <laughs> Gerard. You know, my grandson, my grandson, I, I never thought about it, but I I look at him and I've never been happier. It's just as though my life is fulfilled when I look at him. And, or I, I have another one, but like I said, I don't, and I love him just as much. I just don't get a chance to see him because he's so far away. But um, yeah, love is a good thing. We're lucky when we have it. You know, when I think back on all those punk years, and all the destruction and all the drugs and all the people that died, including Jean-Michel, and all of those other things. The one thing I always knew was that I was loved. Uh, my parents loved me, and um, that has a big difference on how you see the world. If you don't feel you're loved and that nobody cares about you, it's a pretty lonely place. Anyway, just my thoughts. <laughs> Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And Jared, I want to say it again. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Interobank podcast. It's been an absolute honor to have you. And thank you, Ian, for joining us as well. Oh, and thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Gerard, for having me. Thank you for thinking about me, Ian. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Interobank podcast. You can catch up with every episode on Google Play, Apple Music, and Spotify. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with all things Fanshawe.